Hello, cinefans. I'm Kendall Kruver, and this is Watching Classic Movies. I was happy to welcome back novelist Martin Turnbull, my most popular guest on the podcast to date. We talked about Bogart, Bacall, Hollywood, and Warner Brothers Studios during World War II, and how they're featured in his Hollywood Homefront trilogy, including the recently released finale to this fascinating blend of fact and fiction. You must remember this. Welcome, Martin. Thank you for joining me on the show again. Thank you for having me back. This is wonderful fun. I have been just delighted to see how the episode I did with you a year ago is still my most popular episode. Like we've discussed how my content is kind of evergreen. So all of the episodes, you know, see growth in, in, in listenership, but yours has still seen exponential listenership. And I just think that's wonderful that's, that you've got that's... such a following. Thank you. That's awfully wonderful to hear because when you put your stuff out into the world, you don't really know who's listening. And it's it's hard to measure the extent to which the people you're writing for actually find you because there's a lot going on in the world. So stuff like this is very encouraging for somebody like me to know, you know people are listening and people are interested. So that's that's wonderful to hear. Yeah, it's wonderful. I mean, the, pe- the people who have commented, you know, are definitely reading a lot of your books too, which I'm beginning to understand the addictive nature of these books, <laughs> which, which we'll go into further, what, what you're sure. doing to make these books so good. But now we're, we're here talking today, celebrating the release of the final book of your Hollywood Homefront trilogy. Uh-huh. The very exciting You Must Remember This, which takes place after the conclusion of World War II as, as, as it is coming to an end. Mm-hmm. But um, I wanted to start with the beginning, though. Of this uh-huh. trilogy, because if there's one word that that comes to mind when I think about it, it's bogey. Bogey. It yes. isn't necessarily about him. That it really focuses on your fictional characters, Luke Valenti and Nell Davenport, how they meet and as their relationship unfolds. Uh-huh. But you've also got this deep history of bogey um, in these wartime years, and I'd love to know why bogey. How? What was your introduction to bogey? What do you like about him? I think for me, he stands out because in this era of the studio, of the studio era of Hollywood, star personas were built around a particular person who had a particular trait, had a particular personality or a persona that the, the studios could build something on. So Clark Gable pretty much played Clark Gable. Gary Cooper played Gary Cooper. And to another extent, these men and women had a very particular trait. There was only one Judy Garland. There was only one Betty Davis. And so these, the, their star personas were built around who they were, essentially who they were. Bogey was different because Bogey was building a career on, uh, on playing gangsters and hoods and truck drivers and, and working men. But in fact, in real life, he wasn't that at all. He was born into an upper middle class, fairly affluent household in New York. He went to private schools. He had a huge education. He loved to read. He was into philosophy and art. But he happened to have the face of a, a gangster mm-hmm. and a guy good with guns and good with fists in a street fight. So his screen persona didn't match his, his real life persona. And for me, the appeal of the golden era of Hollywood is looking at the contrast between the perfection that was appearing on screen and the reality of what it was like when the cameras stopped and the emotional toll that 
at that that projecting these perfect personas took on these people, which is why there was a, a high rate of divorce and a high rate of alcoholism and and there was all this drama behind the scenes, because it took a lot to be a perfect person. Bogey in my mind wasn't having any of that. I mean he played the game, sure, but he wasn't particularly comfortable with it because there was this huge contrast between who he really was and what he did for a living and how he projected himself on screen. So the more I learned about Bogey, the more appeal that he had. Because I'm not, I'm not really a gangster movie guy. I'm not really a film noir guy. But there was always something about Bogey that was very, his performances were very grounded. And I think he lived his off-screen life as normally as he could. He pursued his interests, which was sort of reading and philosophy and art, but also he was a big yachtsman. So any chance he got, he was out on the sea in the real world, like the real, real world, out on the Pacific, sailing these yachts, maybe sometimes himself. And he surrounded himself with people who were adventurous, but also intellectual, who were very witty and very articulate, and not because they looked right or they were good for studio PR. So it was that appeal to me that that uh, sparked my interest in Bogey. You know, it, all of this makes me think of, 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 a, of a few pictures that I love of him. One is him and Lauren Bacall laughing, like really laughing together. And you see a real bond, like how this is genuine love. And yes. another one is him without his hairpiece. Oh, yeah. Hold, uh-huh. Holding a balloon at, I think, Liza Minnelli's birthday party when she was little, just kind of staring into his face. It's just interesting to me. I mean, now t- today... Baldness can be a fashion choice. I mean, you know, there are yeah. plenty of people who want to have hair, but there's just as many who actually choose not to. But back then, that was something to not have it. And here he he was balding more because of the treatments he was taking, I believe, to have children. Yes, yes. He and, and Lauren Bacall were having trouble conceiving. Yeah. And somehow, somebody decided, the doctor, I guess, decided it was bogies. It was a bogey thing, not a Bacall thing. Mm. And so he was he was taking, I guess, hormones or testosterone kind of stuff yeah which had the effect of him shedding even more head, hair than he was starting to shed which is interesting to know that when you look at his movies sort of the 40s movies most of that hair isn't his but you couldn't really tell it was a very expert application of toupees yeah. and hair pieces and he had someone who who specifically whose job it was to develop and maintain and put on these hair pieces because even even knowing and you and you look at him on screen in the forties, you you couldn't really tell. No, no, and, and in the picture, he still just has that glow. He he looks ordinary. You understand that that's what appeals to people, and yet he still has something very special about him. You still see a full man in that very quiet picture. Yeah. And I guess there's another picture, kind of almost connected to that, is him with his daughter on a swing. It's like a uh-huh. two-person swing, and he's all bunched up with her yeah. in the swing. Right and. To me, I haven't read a ton about him. I, I started reading a biography of him and realized that this was probably not all right. I started looking at the sources and I never really have read a great source on him. But those three pictures, I think, tell me a lot about who he is. And I think maybe a kind of a, a bit about the appeal of him to, to you. Yes. Yeah. So, and he, with, with his children, the impression that I get is that by the end of his third marriage, his horrible, horrible third marriage, I think he'd kind of given up that he would ever find true love, that he'd ever find somebody he could have a decent relationship with and therefore ever have kids. 
And then along comes Lauren Bacall and okay, she's 25 years younger and she's a total knockout, but there was something between them. There was a spark that developed between them and it blossomed into a very, very happy fourth marriage and kids and everything that he wanted that I think by that stage, he'd almost given up on getting. And, <laughs> and, it, and it coincided with him becoming a romantic star, which wasn't something he thought would ever happen. He, doesn't, he never really quite understood his appeal. But he landed at the top of the list round about the same time that Bacall came into the picture. So suddenly he went from the terrible marriage with Mayo Metho to the opposite of that. Everything came together, everything worked, and it worked perfectly, and it was a a, a joy, and it and it they had children, and his career he became the top guy at Warner Brothers and one of the top people in Hollywood. So in the forties he blossomed into into to like a, his new act, the new act of 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 bogey as romantic hero. This brilliant final act, and yes. this is what you write about in the trilogy. Really, is is him doing Casablanca, and then meeting Betty, Laura, and Bacall, and then uh-huh. and then and then kind of the end of it, where it shifts more into your your fictional characters, Luke and Nell. So you didn't plan to make this a trilogy, is that right? When you started writing this book, these no, books, n- not at all. Um, for the longest time, I had an idea to write a novel set against the the filming of Casablanca, because I knew quite a lot about that, because it's one of my favorite movies, perhaps even my favorite movie of all time. And so I'd read a lot about it, and, and it was a chaotic production. They they rewrote the script, on and on and on. Um, he was he was v- desperately unhappy with his marriage falling apart. He wasn't able to give his co-stars any, especially um, Ingrid Bergman, any rapport because he was just he was just miserable. And so I thought that's that's an interesting background for a a story. So I always wanted to write a, a novel about or set against, not about, but a set against the this chaotic production of Casablanca. So I'd I'd finished my Garden of Alice series. I wrote a novel about Alan Azimova. I wrote a novel about Irving Thalberg. And so the time had come I thought, okay, now's the time for my Casablanca novel. And so I outlined it. I did my research. I'm I'm writing away on the first draft, and I got about halfway through the first draft, and I realized, huh, there's more to this story than just the making of Casablanca. That alone would be fine, but this is a time when America is plunged into World War II, and Americans, as all people around the world, experienced a lot in a very short amount of time. So as a novelist, that's that's a great story, because you have great change, great upheaval, in a in a compacted amount of time. And I thought, what I can actually do here is take a look at what it was like for people on the home front, and it's specifically Hollywood, because World War II is when Hollywood turned into a propaganda machine. Propaganda in a good way. It was like all for the war effort, but it sort of shifted gears, and people were going to the movies 24-7 because people were working shifts 24-7 in, in the war factories. So... Hollywood went into high gear, even higher gear than it had been in 1939, which was, you know, quote unquote, Hollywood's greatest year. So there was a lot going on in a very compacted amount of time. And it was all life and death. And it was, you send these boys off to war, will they come back at all? Will they come back injured? Will they come back changed? Well, of course they will, because war changes us. And at the end of the war, everybody thinks that they're just going to go back to normal. We'll just go back to the way we were, not realizing the war changes people. It changes the people who went to war and it changes the people who stayed at home, primarily women who went back into the workforce and thought, oh, wait a minute, I can build airplanes. 
I can build engines. I can be paid a lot more than I ever thought. Wait a minute. I don't have to go back into the, the home and raise the kids and cook the meals and clean the stove. There's, I've got options. I didn't know I had options. Mm-hmm. And men had gone off to war and experienced terrible things, awful things that they had to deal with in what we now call um, PTSD. Um, but that changed them as well. So we can't go back to the way we were. We can't go back to how it was because all these things are in flux and changed. And I thought, well, that's, that's a much bigger story than the filming of a movie. Right. So halfway through the writing of the book that became All the Gin Joints, I thought, no, I, this is a bigger story. So I continued to write the novel, but I also thought about what the next book and the book after that would be, because chronologically, by the end of All the Gin Joints, we're minutes away from Betty Bacall being discovered by Howard Hawks, well, actually by Howard Hawks's wife, right. and summoned to Hollywood to do a screen test. And she nailed it, and she got cast, and she got cast against Humphrey Bogart, and thus we have the beginnings of one of Hollywood's greatest romances. So book two, Thank You Lucky Stars, is is about my fictional character characters witnessing, like have a front row seat to this this thing that we now look on as kind of almost as one word, bogey and bacall. It's almost like it's a concept, it's a thing, it's a one word word. And she has front row seat. Nell has front row seat to all of this unfolding, which I thought was uh, was also as interesting as as the making of Casablanca because it was the making of Bogey and Bacall. And then in book three, I had a challenge because in book three, as it just so happens, Bogey and, neither Bogey and Bacall made a significant movie in the in the period right after the war. They made the the Big Sleep. But it sat on a shelf for 18 months because the, the studios, not just Warner Brothers, but all the studios, had made all these war movies, these pro-war, yay America, yay, yay the Allies, um, vanquished the Nazis movies. They made a ton of them. So they, with the war coming to the end, the studios, they had to burn through these movies. They'd put these movies out and put everything on the shelf. So, and that one of those was the big sleep. So I thought, okay, I don't have a Bogey and Bacall movie. I don't have a Bacall movie. I don't have a Bogey movie. What I wanted to do, therefore, was focus on what happens when Luke comes back from war. And also what happens to their relationship because Nell has changed as well. So Luke and Nell stand in for every guy who came back from war thinking we'll just pick, pick things up the way we left them off and finding that the girl he left behind wasn't the same girl at all. So they sort of stand in for all of the people who had to cope with the end of the war. The end of war was great, and yay, let's celebrate that, but we've, we're now in a new world. We're now discovering we're in a new world. We now have to discover how do we negotiate a new world that wasn't what we expected. That's, to me, that sounded like a pretty good story. I, I do like how it builds to this crescendo of normalcy, you might see. It, it gets more and more glamorous as, as they level up professionally, but yeah. but what we're, what we're really talking about is, is them going to, into this Hollywood world and, you know, all these different stories about life in Hollywood, the movies, the Bogey and Bacall thing. But then it gets more into this man and woman. And, and it's, it's right there in the middle of Hollywood, but it really becomes about the emotions of these people who, you know, are just representative of America. Right, right. Yeah. As, as set against a, an industry that represents emotion, because at the heart of nearly every movie is a love story. But it's, it's a fictional love story. And so these people are used to manufacturing love, manufacturing emotions, manufacturing tears. Um, and, and 
that's what we remember because those are the images that we now, yada, 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 30, 40, mm -hmm. 50, 60 years later, uh, are left with. But there were re real people living real lives behind this manufactured representation on the screen. And that's what I always find more interesting is like what, what was actually going on and what did people have to go through in order to, to rise to their, the, their peak of their talents, but also the peak of a very, very competitive field. And it answers my question too, because the first book really is Casablanca. The second book is in a lot of ways to have and have not, because that was kind of the scene of where the romance bloomed. And, and I couldn't find anything. I, I, I was kind of thinking the big sleep, but, but it really, it, I, I understand it better now. Like it, it's the real life love story. Like you have these two, Bogey and Bacall and Luke and Nell, yeah. you know, yeah. kind of together and juxtaposed together, which is, I think what makes it such an interesting series because, because of the way we go back and forth between the real and the, um, the artificial in the, some ways. It, yeah. The invented. Yep. Invented is a very good yeah. way to put it. Yes. Right. So tell right. me about how you fold in all this considerable historical knowledge you have, which anybody who follows you on Twitter knows that you know a lot about Hollywood back in the day, all the wonderful photos you share and the history that you know about it. And I know you must do a lot of research for these books. So mm -hmm. how do you draw that research? How do you right. draw it into the story? What I, I, I start with a timeline. I, and often what I'll do, as I'm doing with my next project, I'll look at what movies were being made at the time, not when were they released, but when when were they being shot? Who was the director? Who was the stars? Who had they just starred with or worked with? Who was their next project? I try, I try and uh, dive into what was going on at the time. So I'll start with a timeline, not just of what movies were being made. If I'm if I if I'm focusing on a particular studio, like I did with the Hollywood Homefront trilogy, which was very specifically Warner Brothers, but I'll look at who was making what and doing what. And I'll also look at what else was going on. Like in World War II, when was the, the Casablanca conference? And when was the Potdam conference? And, and what was the, when, when did we get close to, to Japan? And what was the visa? So I'll, I'll build a timeline. And in building a timeline, I'll have ideas of, well, you know, something like that. My ordinary character, characters living their ordinary lives wouldn't really have anything to do. But if they worked at Warner Brothers and they saw this, how would that affect them? And so I, I, I have a timeline that I have built over many years of researching books and reading biographies and memoirs and accounts of the studios and the directors. I have a very, very comprehensive timeline of what happened when in Hollywood and in the larger world, but focused on Hollywood and Los Angeles history as well. When did television start to come in? When did radio take off? When did Technicolor come in? And how did that change the, the, uh, the landscape? So I have a very, very, very detailed chronology is what it is of what happened when so i'll build that into it and so at the same time like i'm doing that with my left hand with my right hand i'm developing these characters and who they are and what they're about and what their history was and how when they land in hollywood and what kind of hollywood do they land into like for instance luke at the start of all the gin joints he lands in hollywood the day of pearl harbor he thinks he's going to hollywood he's going to hollywood to drop something off and then go back to brooklyn well, he lands in Hollywood, and that morning is Pearl Harbor. So instantly, his world has changed. Instantly, his country's at war, and he can't get out of L.A. because transportation is now a military thing. So you, you, you take these facts, and you think, well, okay, Pearl Harbor's just happened. How does that look, and how does that change the trajectory of my character? And so 
my characters are buffeted, as I think we all are to a certain extent, by what's going on around us. Uh, you don't even necess- they don't necessarily know it's a big, huge historical event that's happened. All they know is there's a report that's that our bases in Pearl Harbor have been attacked, probably by the Japanese. We don't know what's happened. Right. We don't know the damage, let alone we don't know that it is a it is a an event that American history turns on. It is one of the like a JFK being assassinated. It is an event that everything turns on. Everything is measured before or after. So you have to put your, your, your mind in the minds of the characters who don't know any of that. They don't know the history, but I need to know the history so that, that the lives that I depict for them are buffeted by real events. So it becomes a, a weaving of factual events and fictional lives interwoven. So it's like a balancing act that you, that you, you try and achieve a, a realistic story. Because these things really did happen, and these people really did exist, but you have, fic- you have fictional characters, so you try and weave a realistic story so that you, the reader, don't really know if a, an event I mentioned did, a- did actually happen. Was there mm-hmm. actually a person? That- Was that an actual movie that MGM did that year? And I need to go to IMDb and look at, did Martin make that up? Or <laughs> I, want, I want you to go, oh, I've never heard of that movie. Was that an actual movie? So you, it, it takes a, a certain patience to just sort of slowly weave that through together so at the end of the day you're reading a story that didn't actually happen but it could have it feels like it did yeah yeah and it's interesting to me that that in doing you know bogey and mccall as as the stars you're focusing on it kind of forces you to learn a whole lot about warner brothers the studio I, yeah. But but how did you feel about Warner's before and, you know, over the course of learning more about it for this book? Well, in, in all this mixed, I had a lunch with a friend of mine, Stephen Smith, who had just who was writing a book about Max Steiner, who was the, the premier composer for Warner Brothers for decades. And, and he said to me, who's your favorite studio? Yeah. And and I instantly said MGM. I'm an MGM boy. The big boy. I'm. I'm a yeah I'm a I'm a MGM musicals Judy Garland uh, uh Mickey Rooney Hardy Boy Hardy Hardy Andy Hardy series Thin Man Myrna Loy I love Myrna Loy and, and William Powell and so that was my immediate answer and he's a Warner Brothers guy and we sort of talked about it for a while and then I, as I was walking home from lunch I thought wait a minute am I an MGM guy wait a minute I don't think <laughs> I am I'm a 1930s MGM guy I'm a 1940s Warner Brothers guy, and I'm a 1950s 20th century Fox guy. Yes, I understand that so completely. Right. So I, I thought, oh, that was kind of a revelation to me. It's like, oh, wait a minute. I identify as a Warner Brothers 40s guy. Why do I do that? Bogey, Bacall, Howard Hawks. It's that, that very 40s Warner Brothers sensibility. I'm also a big Betty Davis fan. Mm-hmm. I'm a huge, I'm not a huge Joan Crawford fan so much as a huge uh, Mildred Pierce fan. So I thought, yeah, I really am. And that sort of got me thinking about what it is, what is it about Warner Brothers in the 40s that appealed to me more than MGM in the 40s? And it's Bogie and Bacall and it's Betty Davis. They're all sort of reaching their, the peak of their powers yes. with stories that they fought for. And it, it, it just has that. So all, you throw all that into the mix of my little novelist creative brain going bubbling away for the next, the coming project that, that was, this is all while I was writing the Thalberg book. So, which, and he was, 
he was MGM twenties and thirties. So my brain was all, all about MGM, but I was at the end of that. So you kind of, you're thrown to the mix and right. that's, and this, this Hollywood Homefront trilogy is a, is a, is a result of that. Yeah. Yeah. So, wow. You figured it all out. I, I did. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that took me what, three minutes to say, but we're talking about a year long process of going, huh, let me think about that. It's a lot of staring out the window and, and going for walks and going, what actually is it about? Huh, let me see what Warner Brothers, what were the movies that Warner Brothers were doing? Oh, I get it. Yeah. Maltese Falcon, Casablanca, The Old Maid, and, you know, um, all these movies like, oh, I love that movie. Oh, I love that movie. Oh, my God, I love that movie. Well, they're all Warner Brothers in the 40s, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. It just builds and builds. No, I, I'm beginning to understand this myself. Like, oh, I am an MGM 50s musical person. And I am a Warner Brothers 30s pre-code person. It makes so much sense. And it's such a great way to talk to your friends about movies, actually, is if you figure out all these little areas of things, you know, film noir, whatever, whatever your favorite thing is, right? Because these studios evolved, the movie making evolved, the technology evolved, and the studios evolved. And it, and stars come along, particular stars come along. One of the reasons why I'm a Fox fan of the 50s is Marilyn Monroe. She sort of came along. And it was, and and then Doris Day came along in the late forties, early fifties. So, so certain stars come along that that define eras of a particular way. So Judy Garland and, and Mickey Rooney and MGM, Bergie and Bacall, Betty Davis, Warner Brothers, Marilyn and Fox in the fifties, and s- certain directors and styles come in and out. So it wasn't just I re- what I realized it was not just a blanket MGM from start to finish. There are eras, and there are kind of eras within eras, because at the end of it all, it's people inputting their talent, whether they're writing it, they're shooting it, they're designing the costumes, they're, they're yeah. in front of the camera, they're behind the camera. These are people who are coming together at the height of their creative powers to, to put into the, the cauldron that turns out to be now Voyager, or turns out to be gentlemen prefer blondes, or to have and have not. It's not just a thing. It's a whole bunch of factors all coming together at the same time with people who are at the peak of their powers. And that's why I think we have classic cinema, why it continues to speak to people like you and me, and I would venture people who are listening to us now, is these, these stories, these people, these personas are the peak of a creative endeavor that fell apart when the, when the studio system fell apart in the late 50s. It's, it's for me, these movies... I mean, I I just I'll watch them to the day I die. I just I can't mm-hmm. I can't get enough of them. Right, right. As as soon as as I got a, a load of Betty Davis, it was over for me. <laughs> <laughs> Did this I... is it? This is going to be my life. Seeing as yep. many of these things as possible, and it's amazing Absolutely. how much there is, and how much there continues to be. Because yeah. you're right, the the things like oh, I've never heard of that. I, there was at least one in this trilogy that I, I I looked up, having no idea what it was a bogey film. So it's absolutely true. Okay, so yeah. you mentioned another project. Can you talk about it? Are you ready to talk about it? Um, only in the most general terms. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's another situation where I had an idea mm-hmm. and I thought, okay, so this will be a standalone novel. And then as I started to do all those things I just described, develop a chronology, a timeline, look at what movies and who was, being, who was coming to the fore and what was going on, I thought, oh no, I think I've got another trilogy in my hands. I think I do. <laughs> so this one is, uh, this is in the late 30s. Nice. And I'm, I am really a 30s guy. Uh, yeah. uh, Sendan, I'm really a 30s guy. 
and I thought, oh, okay, this is this is really depression, not the depression, but the after effects of the depression. It's like these people are still in for that we're still kind of crawling out of the depression. So people are still like, can I actually spend that extra dollar because maybe the depression isn't over, and maybe oh oh no. So these people are sort of crawling out of the depression as Hollywood is reaching its peak because 1939 was the golden year of Hollywood, the, the, Hollywood's greatest year. So it's, it's a, an uneasy balance between people coming out of the, the worst era of probably America's history just since the Civil War, I think probably would be reasonable to say. But in Hollywood, we're heading towards the golden year of Hollywood's greatest year. And so I thought that's a nice uh, tension, a nice dynamic that people that I can plot my characters, because I had a character, a very specific character in mind. And so it's, so that was, that was just going to be a year. And I went, oh, wait, there's so much happened. And so many classic movies <laughs> were made in 38 and early 39 that were released in 39. Of course, the big monster is, is Gone with the Wind. So that's, that's going to feature a lot. But we, you know, we've, we've got lots and lots of movies Stagecoach and The Women and Wizard of Oz and you can go down the list of classic movies that all came out basically together. And so that's what they're working for. But of course my characters don't know that. They're just doing their job in nineteen in the late nineteen thirties, not realizing that everybody in town is heading towards the peak of the mountain, the golden mountain of nineteen thirty nine. So it takes more than one book to tell that story. I'm I don't know, halfway through the outline of book one, which well, I'm probably more than halfway now. So I've kind of got my groove going. Yeah. When you start, I, I, I'm a very big outliner. My outlines are very, very detailed. So I work out the story ahead of time. So they know what's happening when at any time so that when I go to write it, I don't have to worry about what's going to happen. I worry about how best do I, do I shape this sentence? What words can I use to bring this scene alive if they're walked onto the set of, I don't know, I'm making this up, but like the Munchkin Village in Wizard of Oz. If my character finds herself staring at the Munchkin Village, which in real life must have been a jaw-dropping thing to see, um, how, would, how would she feel about that? Not knowing that The Wizard of Oz, of course, would become the classic it becomes. Because it yeah. was a big, it was a very expensive movie and it was a popular book, but they didn't know that it would become the movie that it would become. So what, what, what would she feel like? Like, how would she feel about seeing The Munchkin Village? And especially because Technicolor was still fairly early. So she didn't have a decade of experience of watching Technicolor movies. So that kind of stuff. So, so, so you, I build all that in the writing of it. But what happens when and what is the result of that and what will happen in the next scene I put into the outline. So I'm now just at the outline and getting, getting all my ducks lined up on the wall. <laughs> so when I go to write it, I can go boom, 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 boom. And I can, I can focus on the, the more minute word choice and, and um, scene construction that goes into writing a, a novel that people, uh, that people will feel like they're actually there. Because that, that's the goal of my goal and probably the goal of every writer is to, is to place my reader on the Munchkin Village set of, of the Wizard of production of The Wizard of Oz so that they know what it's like to, to stand there. Because I've actually been on that soundstage. I did a, a, a Sony Tours. <laughs> it's funny. I, did a, I went on tour with the Sony Studios, which is the old MGM um, studios. And I did it to, to see what it was like to be at MGM. So I'm in this group. I have this nice tour guide. He's talking about this, that, and the other. He's not mentioning MGM at all. I'm thinking, uh, uh, Sony uh, Studios, oh, who cares? <laughs> so halfway through the tour, I put my hand up. I said, excuse me. 
um, are you going to mention the MGM days at all? And this guy, who was very nice, he looked at me and went, oh, uh, if you're interested. And I didn't say, dude, it's why I'm here. But I went, uh, that would be great. And he said, well, actually, follow me. And um, at the time, one of the uh, Angels and Demons, the, um, the Da Vinci Code movie, was, was taking up most of the, the sound stages at, at Sony because they were recreating the Vatican or something. I don't know. There was one stage that was unused, and it was the stage that the Wizard of Oz's Munchkin Village was on. <laughs> and of course, it's just an empty soundstage. But the way he, he had all the knowledge, he just wasn't sharing it with us because he didn't think anybody cared. He said, nobody asks about this old stuff. I went, oh, my God. That's so, so sad. So, yeah. So we, we walked onto this cavernous soundstage, and he sort of painted a picture for us. And then he took us over to um, a, a kind of a corner of the soundstage, and we looked down, and there's a trap door. And he said, I can't open this trap door right now, but back in the day, this was the trap door that um, Margaret Hamilton used to appear in a puff of yellow smoke, or whatever it was, as the Wicked Witch of the West and through which she had, she had to drop down as she made her exit. And this is right there in front of me. Like, I'm looking at thinking, uh, uh, this is what I came for. This is what I want to see. And this man wasn't sharing this. I'm just thinking how many people have seen that film would be thrilled to see that. That's really interesting. <sighs> what, what, what has been communicated to him, clearly, right? What, what, what he's seen through his visitors. But, yeah, yeah. <sighs> so after, after that, he threw in, I mean, probably half of the second half of the tour was was MGM stuff. And I don't, I've got no idea if anybody in my group even cared about what he was yeah. doing, but this is yeah, why absolutely. I was here. Yeah, so yeah. give it to me. Give me, give me all you've got. Well, yeah. good for him knowing it. I'm glad, I mean, I'm glad he you, knew it. You would probably not want to do that job if you didn't know something, but it's, it's still pretty impressive in this day and age, I would say. Well, I, I loved hearing about your process, I, that this is something that we didn't do the first time around. And right, it's really right. interesting to me. And it really helps me to understand why you succeed as a, as a storyteller. You know, you get your facts in a row and then you just set yourself going. It's, 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 it's wonderful to know how that goes. And I, I really appreciated you coming on and congratulations on the completion of your trilogy. Thank you. And I cannot wait to, to see this new book when it comes out. Well, trilogy. You're, yeah, you're just going to yeah. keep us re reading, Martin. And I, and I appreciate that. And you know, I appreciate that very much. Thank you very much Thank for coming you. on. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful. Go to watchingclassicmovies.com for more information about Martin's books, including his latest, You Must Remember This. If you're enjoying the show, I invite you to rate and review wherever you listen. It helps a lot. Thank you for your support. I'm Kendall Kruver, watching classic movies. Until next time. <laughs>